Welcome to Series 2 of Leading Between the Lines, a podcast from Alternique Inspired Growth with me, Peter Thorpe, as your host. In the coming months, I'll be talking to the people development heads from some of the world's newest, fastest growing companies and finding out how they go about recruiting, developing and retaining top talent for their business. One thing's for sure, it's very different to even a year ago. Most people I've interviewed on this series are involved with a startup for the first time. Some have previous experience, but my guest today is a serial startup addict. She says about herself, my happy place is high growth tech startups. She writes a blog, has her own website, and is constantly in demand to speak about creating structures from nothing. So let's find out how she keeps pulling the proverbial rabbit from the hat and welcome Maria Campbell, Vice President of People at Griffin Bank. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Very nice to, to have you. So um, we always start by asking our guests for a little bit of context about the company that they work for and a little bit of context about what they're doing there. So over to you. So Griffin is in the process of getting authorization to become a bank. Um, once we get that, which should be in the next year or so, uh, we will offer banking as a service. Um, this means that we're, we're kind of making the bank that you can build on um, to enable other companies to be able to uh, integrate and offer banking services. At the moment, right now, if you wanted to start a fintech startup, you need to go away and find a banking partner. You need to build your own ledger you would need to um, do a lot of kind of compliance work as well. And we want to simplify all of that, put it all together and in our hands so that you can just start. You can look at the API docs and get going. And what about you? What's your job? What's your remit? Uh, so people and culture, very, very broadly, um, which is everything from our hiring plan and how we want to implement that, the people that we bring into the team, right the way through to things like uh, workspace, building community within the team, all of the classic HR things, and a lot around internal communications and process as well. My job is basically to make sure that the people who exist in the company are able to be effective, efficient, and have a nice time. Yeah, we'll come back to that have a nice time bit, because that's really important, isn't it? Just a bit more on the, the company, if I may. So are your products going to be personal products, or are they going to be corporate products? We'll be working with businesses and we will enable them to be able to offer products to their own customers. And the fact that you're actually going to be your own authorised bank, uh, I sense that's one of the big deals for you that's going to steal a march on the opposition because there's quite a lot of fintechs now uh, in the market, aren't there? Yeah, see, the problem with the, the big banks really is that they just don't really understand the startup business model. Um, and effectively what you're doing as a fintech startup is you're going to a big banking partner and you're kind of pitching them on the business that you have and they want to understand how risky that will be for them, what that will do for their reputation. Um, and if you don't understand the kind of startup ecosystem, it becomes very difficult to, uh, to be persuaded effectively to enable someone else to use your banking license in order to offer services to their customers. But we're, um, we're a team of bankers and startup people, and we understand technology. Yeah. So Griffin started in around 2017, and you've got how many people now? How many employees? There's about 30 of us. That's amazingly slow growth to something that's going to become a scale up pretty soon. So, okay, when you get your license, 
is that when you're really going to fly in terms of recruiting people? That's when it kicks in, yeah. So um, the way that banking authorizations work is uh, we have a mobilization period, which is sort of somewhere between six and 12 months where we, we have permission to be a bank, but we're not allowed to hold customer money yet. Um, and that's when we start actually operating like a bank. So the team will scale up quite a lot during that period. And then once we have full banking authorization at the end of that period, that's when the customers come on board, which is when the team explodes in a good way. Yeah, well, well, that explosion in a good way. What is your ultimate number of employees? Uh, I mean, it's kind of impossible to tell. It depends how much we grow. Um, We have plans based on a lot of kind of conservative assumptions. Um, Having a large team isn't really something that we aspire to. It's more making sure that we're able to operate effectively and efficiently. We talk a lot about automation, about making things easier so that we don't have people, you know, filling out forms every day or doing small, tedious tasks. Um, So it's not so much that we're aspiring to have a big team, it's that we have really big ambitions and there are certain skill sets that we need in place to do that. So we will grow relatively rapidly. Now, you're 34 and you're a woman. Yes. And I spent 25 years in financial services and it was incredibly male dominated how are you finding it now well i mean this is the great thing about fintech that both finance and tech are incredibly male dominated um so you're kind of battling with two different industries both of which you're kind of an anomaly in a lot of ways um i'm fine with it i enjoy it um my i grew up with two sisters and went to an all-girls school so i spent a lot of time surrounded by women i think women are wonderful um, and, you know, I aspire to, to build companies where the team reflects the society that we live in. So, you know, you come in and often you're the first or second woman, um, usually the first or second woman on the exec team, but you get used to it and you change it as you grow. What's your exec team looking like in terms of uh, gender? Uh, it's pretty male. I think uh, we are 30% women. Our board is more balanced. How many on the board and how many in the exec team? Uh, So there are nine or 10 of us on the exec team, um, three women, and um, our non-exec board directors are 50-50. So actually, that's not bad, is it, uh, if you look at the industry norms? Yeah, it's not bad. Not great, but not bad. Now, you're a serial startup queen. You might not (laughs) want to be called that, but you, you are by far and away the most experienced startup executive that we've interviewed on this series. And you've been doing it since 2013 with some major companies, haven't you? Yeah. Um, Just tell us who you've uh, worked for, how long you usually stay around and what you like to leave them with. Yeah, so um, I've worked at a couple of fintech companies and a couple of uh, companies more in the kind of technology infrastructure space which is, I think, why Griffin was so interesting to me, because it's that combination of uh, of the, the sort of change that you can have when you're working at an infrastructural level and enabling other people um, and also tackling financial services. Like money is such an important part of life. Um, so I've started my career at GoCardless as their first non-technical person um, and became their head of people. I worked at Monzo for a couple of years. Uh, then I moved to Sneak, who are doing really well at the moment. Um, I learned a lot about security there. It was really, really fascinating working in the dev tool space. And then I worked at Pagative, which is in the ad tech space, um, and now Griffin. 
typically I tend to enjoy working with founder-led businesses. I like to join before everything is on fire. You've got a hundred people, nobody has a clue what's going on, you need to go in and do damage control. I like to do proactive, preventative, um, building that sort of people architecture and systems and tools. Um, and in terms of when I leave, well, I think I think startups are really interesting because the business changes so much over a short period of time. The person that you hire to put people stuff in place at the very beginning and the person that you hire to lead your thousand person company to IPO have very different skill sets. So I tend to stay until I've done the things that excite me um, and a different skill set is needed to, to lead the company further forward. And that's usually kind of around the 200 person mark. There's a quote from you from one of your blogs, which says, and I quote, that uh, you think of yourself as the child on the exec team is actually a grown up who's done things. And that <laughs> I don't know in what context you said that or whether that was a degree of anger and frustration. But where did that come from? What's what's your angle there? Um, so I don't take myself particularly seriously. Um, I don't own any suits. I have often found myself in a room with white men wearing suits who are 10 plus years older than me. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've we've spoken on video calls so you can see that I do not have a particularly severe haircut and, you know, don't dress in a particularly grown up way. I'm more on the kind of children's TV presenter rather than like a suit wearing business person end of the spectrum. Um, and I think like it's very, very easy to be underestimated. Um, particularly when you're in a position where you're interviewing people who have who have spent more time working than you have being alive um and so there have been lots of situations where I feel like people have kind of been quite dismissive of me which I think is particularly interesting in the kind of interview context where the, the power dynamic is very clear like I am here and I am making a decision on whether or not you will come and work in this company so to be dismissive to someone at that point in time, I think is very, um, very telling about how much or not I'd like to work with the person. Um, but yeah, and like, you know, like you say, I've, I've been working in the startup space for eight or nine years um, and have seen a lot. I think, uh, I think a, a, a year in a startup company is probably similar to several years in a different company, just the amount of change that there is, the amount that you learn. So, yeah, I uh, might look like a child sometimes, but I have done things. Do you find it easier working with women or men? Um, I find it easiest to work with people who are quite collaborative. Um, I don't really think gender makes a huge amount of difference in how easy someone is to work with. Um, I like working with collaborative people who understand that, like, the people space is a space where there is some expertise required. It's like, do you know, it's kind of like saying, oh, I've bought things, therefore I'd be really good at sales. It's like, oh, I am a person and I have met people, therefore I could do your job. So I don't like to work with people who are dismissive of the, the amount of kind of energy and thought and expertise and experience that go into to doing this. Um, generally, I look for people who are curious, um, collaborative and okay with listening rather than talking don't you think that's women more than men though because in my own experience I've found more women are collaborative 
and the male ego is uh, well charted in millions of years and still exists massively, especially in financial services. And the ego is very hard to deal with if you want to collaborate, isn't it? Yeah, I do struggle with high ego people and people who are closed minded and people who are not willing to change their mind. Um, people who care more about being right than getting to the right outcome. Um, I might have just been very fortunate. I've managed to avoid working with highly ego-driven people of any gender. So I'm doing okay so far. You're certainly doing more than very okay so far. So uh, you come in here to Griffin. You're in charge of all things people-related from uh, first stop to last stop. What have you done so far? You've been there, what? Five, six months? Yeah, nearly six months. So what does the first six months always bring for you in a new role like this? It's wildly varied. It's really only the first couple of weeks that are always the same. Um, different, different founding teams take people different levels of seriousness. Some companies you go in and, you know, there is a relatively good interview process in place. Um, there is an org chart. They know what their values are. They have thought about culture. Um, some places you go in and you have like 12 spreadsheets and and the, the mission is more along the lines of like, hey, we have some people, we'd like to have some more people and keep the ones that we have. I don't know what to do, can you take over? Um, so it's always a case of doing lots of listening and understanding what kinds of problems there are um, and what what the kind of the kind of overall goal for what they'd like the workplace to feel like for the people who are there. So have you started to write your training programs? Because as soon as you get your license, and one of the things I know you want to do is bring mandatory training to life, your words, yeah. uh, which I think is an admirable aim. And a lot of people have tried that over the last hundred years, some with success, some not. Um, but you're not going to be able to write it as you go along particularly, are you? Because regulation is going to be really severe on you in the banking sector and you're going to have to have everything buttoned down. Exactly, exactly. There is so much regulation around. And like fundamentally it's to make sure that we don't destroy the entire banking system and that we don't um, cause negative outcomes for our customers. So actually all of the regulation that exists is really, really well-intentioned. Um, it's just incredibly complicated. And, you know, sometimes you're writing a policy and you need to look in like seven or eight different bits of legislation and talk to a couple of different experts to figure out what you're actually optimizing for, what you're trying to achieve. Um, so, yeah, so as part of our banking license application, there have been several major documents that we've pulled together and then another kind of hundred odd policies that have been written by various people in the team. Um, and most of these we will need to make sure that everybody who that they apply to actually know and understand them. Um, and one approach to this is just print everything out and send everyone several boxes of paper and say, hey, read these in your first month. And then, you know, come and say hi to the people that you work with. Um, but we'd, we'd like to take a much more kind of nuanced, thoughtful approach that factors in the, the kind of employee experience of induction, as well as making sure that people know what they need to know. Uh, and that should be a lot, uh, you know, a lot of the kind of groundwork is there and that our policies are written in human English. They don't contain a ton of content that they don't need to contain. They're very much on the kind of policy end of things, like 
this is how we approach this rather than the, the finely, fine nitty gritty details. And, and that philosophy of just delivering every new starter a box of printed material and then assuming that they've read it and understood it is why the Financial Services Act came into force in the first place all those years ago, because no one was reading it and no one was understanding it. Now, this is complicated for you, I'm guessing, because although you're based in London, not all your people work in London, do they? Yeah, that's right. We have a handful of people who are scattered around Europe. Um, and most of us are in the UK, but not all of us. So when you recruit the bulk of your employees, are they going to be equally spaced around the globe or are you going to concentrate on London? Mostly in the UK. Um, yeah, we're, we're hybrid distributed. So being within commuting distance to the London office isn't particularly important. Um, I've been a Griffin for six months and haven't been to the office yet, even though I'm definitely commutable from it. Um, but yeah, like we mostly work online. Um, but there is there is an advantage in having most of our employees being UK based. And for all the learning and development companies of which we're one, shouting from the rooftops that online learning is hugely successful and engaging, we don't really see it like that. Some of it works really well, the one-dimensional stuff, but there's other stuff that if you can get people together, it invariably has so much more impact than doing it online. And then you can also perhaps take into account how people learn rather than just the documentation you throw out to them and expect them to do it in a way that you might do it. Exactly. I think it's all about variety. It's about making sure that actually you're surfacing the key information. It's thinking about like, actually, what is the landscape of things that you need to learn so that you're not just wading through this endless stack of paper. It's kind of understanding the why, why it's important. And also, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm asked to like say that I've read and understood something and I'm like, well, I've read it, but I don't actually know if I've understood it. Um, so I think having some kind of mechanism in there to reinforce that actually you have understood it, you know, you've you've gone through, you can answer three multiple choice questions about the three key takeaways just to confirm to yourself that you've read it, you've understood it and to reinforce those those kind of key points. Um, but like you say, like there are so many different ways that people learn. And I think um, particularly when you're joining a new company, especially a distributed one, it's nice to be able to have interaction with the people that you work with to kind of intersperse um, information that is is real and relevant to you right now with like actually what is our um, operational risk management framework, which is maybe not super relevant to you right now. Um, so yeah, so kind of mixing it up, using different formats, making sure people are engaging with different people, using space repetition, getting deeper into the content, all of that, I think, will um, make it a lot easier for people to come on board and, uh, and feel like they're able to get stuck in earlier. We've certainly amended the way that we write our training material if it involves people in different countries and using some of it online in as much as the... Um, veri verification around their learning is linked within the module to them having to go to other people in other parts of the business and demonstrate their learning, which actually ticks a number of boxes, as you were saying earlier, about uh, meeting other people, not just being sat at home, but also there's an audit trail there that, that you can create 
that demonstrates learning. And my goodness, you're going to need that with the FCA, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. We need to keep logs of, of all the training that everyone has completed. Um, it's, you know, there is a ton of regulation and there are a ton of requirements on us, but actually all of them align really nicely with how things should work anyway. Um, yeah. I like it a lot. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of wild to me as a person who spent quite a lot of time working in financial services companies that there are a bunch of industries that are just completely unregulated. There's lots of industries that are completely unregulated, but not yours. No, no, not us at all. So there's the technical side, which uh, will be as boring as hell unless you can bring it to life. Are you writing all that material yourself or do you have a team on it or do you sub some of it out? How does that work? The policies themselves have been written by, they've largely been written by our chief risk officer, who is phenomenally knowledgeable and a very good writer and incredibly good at distilling the core information points. So she's written most of the policies. Um, and then the, the kind of subject matter, matter experts are writing summaries for each of the policies, will pull together what the key points are. So it's, um, it's more this kind of structure and content division where my role is to be responsible for structuring how the training works, who does which pieces of the training, giving people the support that they need to be able to put the content in um, and supporting people to deliver it, kind of orchestrating that side of things. Uh, so while I will also read everything and need to understand it all, I don't need to be able to do Q&A on a lot of it. No, absolutely. So let's get off regulation and talk about people, because in another one of your articles, and um, it's not difficult to uh, source articles <laughs> that you've written, is it, or places you've stood up and spoken, because there's a huge back catalogue. Um, you are quoted as saying, uh, most people quit their jobs either because of HR failings or reasons that modern people practices could mitigate, e.g. having an ill-equipped or unqualified manager. So let's get into the ill-equipped and unqualified manager. Let's turn that on its head and say, why will you have managers who are not ill-equipped and unqualified? So as a people person, a lot of the time, my customers are managers. That's kind of how I think about it. I'm, you know, I spend my time designing services and making things for managers to be able to use to support their team. Uh, like if you think about simple things like time off, fundamentally, I don't want everyone in the company to come and talk to me when they're taking time off. I want their manager to be able to answer their questions and handle it and to be able to run that relationship. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by ill-equipped. Um, on that unqualified side, I think that's really interesting. Um, I think something went wrong somewhere and we've taken the kind of historic approach where you know you work in one company for a really long time and then you manage people who are doing your job because you know how to do the job really well and we've turned it people management into kind of a step on the conveyor belt that you take like if you'd like to earn more money you should manage some people but actually it's a very different discipline to doing the work itself for most jobs I think um, like being really good at your job does not mean that you are really good at managing people. So I think we need to kind of reframe this a little bit and think about management as a discipline and also as a sort of career change in a lot of ways. Um, I also think that a lot of the time we conflate uh, running a team, running a project, managing people. Um, we just kind of assume that the three of them are the same skill set, but they are quite different skills. 
Uh, and some people end up doing all three when actually we should sort of disaggregate that and spread that work around. And I think engineering organizations in particular are really interesting for this because a lot of the time you have your technical team lead, you have your architect, you have your engineering manager, you have your product manager. Um, and together that sort of spreads the work across people with, with sort of different, um, different skills and experiences in a way that makes a lot more sense than the way that a lot of other disciplines do this. So from where you sit then, what are the top skills that you believe a manager of people should have? Oh, that's a very good question. That's very difficult. So I think to be a good manager, you need to be really, really adaptable. Um, a while ago, there was this phase of people writing manager readmes, and a lot of the time that was like a manifesto of how I like to do things and how you will do things so that they work. I think manager readmes have a, a useful place in terms of helping your teammates understand your expectations, what they can expect from you and how you like to work. But I think as a manager, it's your job to support and enable the team. And therefore, actually, you need to adapt to them. Different people will benefit from different management styles and you need to be able to have that flexibility. You need to lean into the kind of uh, directive or supportive or enabling mode, depending on the person in the context. So I think that adaptability is one of the key ones. We're uh, doing some work at the moment with a, a top team and exec team of a scale up um, around psychometrics. Myers Briggs, actually, you've probably heard of that, which looks at personality preferences. And they're going to get their top people to write um, a readme document about how they work best with others. But that's with the idea that when they prove that as a successful venture, that they will just download that to the rest of the staff because you're quite right it's more about a manager adapting to the team than it is the team adapting to the manager and that's kind of fundamental isn't it yeah exactly so i am um, a griffin we have manager readmes mine um has been written by people who've worked with me previously so so they really called out the things that are slightly irritating about working with me and the things that you should know um for example i hadn't realized I don't think I properly absorbed the power dynamics of management when I first started managing people. So often I'll make suggestions to my team, but it will just be a suggestion. Often I will start things with, have we considered this? And what I mean is, have we considered this? Rather than, I think you need to go away and consider this. Um, so, so knowing that actually someone who I'm managing for the first time won't necessarily know that all of my questions are literally just questions, I think is really helpful for me. Um, also, one of my team uh, at my previous company pointed out that often I will reschedule the meeting at relatively short notice if I'm in the wrong frame of mind, because I hate not being able to listen properly. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I do do that. If I'm not in a good place to be able to contribute something useful to this conversation that we're having, if I'm preoccupied by something else, I absolutely will move our one-to-one -one so that I can give you my dedicated attention. Um, and I think that's really helpful. Uh, it's those sorts of things that, that people who who work with you notice about you rather than your perception of what you're like to work with that's really really valuable so how self-aware are you oh I don't know I consider myself to be very self-aware well it sounds like it from what you just said yeah I've done quite a lot of introspecting on myself um I think you kind of 
have to as part of the the startup world because everything changes and you need to build your resilience because there will always be 400 things on fire and you can only do with deal with two or three at a time um because you you will often fail things won't work the way that you expected them to things will surprise you and so understanding who you are I think gives you something to hold on to in that space so in this startup environment where it's all kicking off all at once uh, and we talked about personality preferences a minute ago do you prefer to operate in order or chaos uh, I like to structure the chaos somewhat. Nice answer. So there needs to be chaos for me to have something to do. Um, and there is always chaos. Like, I love change. Um, I love changing things. I love learning new things. I love being exposed to new kinds of problems. Um, and so I am accustomed to being in a slightly chaotic place. Um, but I am, I don't seek to create more chaos. I like to kind of rein it in. What's the chaos that we can just put in a little box and deal with later? What's the chaos that will blow over quite quickly? And how do we structure the important stuff so that it becomes less chaotic? So back to the attributes of uh, a quality manager then, we had adaptable. Also, I picked out from that what you said about your own readme, that you're probably going to say that questioning and listening skills are really important in a manager to do those one-to-ones effectively. What else yeah. are you looking at? Uh, storytelling. Oh, I think the ability to tell a good story uh, because as a manager, a lot of the time you are the communication load for your team. You need to be able to listen to what's happening in the rest of the business. You need to be able to pull together these little fragments and snippets that you pick up of things that aren't really relevant to your day to day, but your team might be interested in. And you need to be able to string those into a story. You need to help your team understand the why behind the work that they're doing. You need to connect, you know, the, the long term mission of the company to why we need to do this really tedious thing for a couple of hours next week. Um, And I think storytelling builds a lot of motivation within the team. It gives people that sense of context and purpose and it enables people to be more autonomous. Because when you recruit your managers, either internally or externally, they've got to be good, haven't they? Because it's their team's lives are in their hands. And if you get a rubbish manager, you're likely to leave and you could be a top quality person. So unless your managers are really competent, your whole company is going to collapse like a pack of cards, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, uh, everyone has a story about the worst manager that they've had. And I don't think the worst manager of all of these people that I'm hearing stories about from time to time, like I don't think they knew they were that person's worst manager. Um, so I think it's something that like as organizations we need to take seriously um, making sure that our managers are able to support and enable and level up their team in whatever way that might be. It's also about who manages the manager isn't it it's like who cares for the carer because they need all managers all people need a coach they need someone a mentor whatever you want to call them to help them and develop them and to help them increase their own self-awareness so they can understand the impact they're having on others how are you going to do that yeah I think the peer support network is super super useful here you kind of reach a critical mass of managers in a company where actually you know it becomes really helpful for me in my role because they need things 
And so by providing the things that the managers need, you're having like that magnified impact on the rest of the company. If your manager's like, oh, I need to understand how we can help this person level up their career, or actually I think this person in my team should move to a different team. By building processes for this and solving those problems, you're just kind of leveling everybody up. Um, and I think the peer support network there is really, really helpful as well. Having a buddy who's been through it, who's been through similar situations, who has an understanding of what it's like to be a manager in that particular environment, who you can just kind of talk to, um, bounce ideas off. In smaller companies with fewer managers, I end up doing a lot of that. I'm kind of the, the manager troubleshooter, which I quite enjoy. Which is okay at the moment. It will be maybe for another year, 18 months. But when you do explode with your recruitment, you need to delegate that, don't you? Because you won't be able to do everything all of the time. Exactly. Um, I think one of the reasons why I like startups so much is because I don't really enjoy like doing things all the time. I like making things that just kind of take care of themselves. Um, I would rather tweak and repair the machine rather than be doing the thing itself. Um, and so building out these kind of networks and managers with different perspectives and different backgrounds and having some like diversity within that pool and then creating spaces for people to build community becomes really, really important. You said at the beginning that sometimes you dress like a children's TV presenter. And the more I listen mm-hmm. to you, the more I think you would have just been a fantastic children's TV presenter. Did you ever fancy that? <laughs> no, not at all. Um I do really, really enjoy hosting um, group meetings and facilitating stuff. Um, I don't think I could deal with kids TV. It's all a bit early in the morning. Um, and I swear too much as well. Um, but yeah, I uh, I love putting on my children's TV presenter hat and like organising a team building session or like running a company meeting. Um, one of the things I'm working on at the moment is orchestrating our company offsite for November. Um, and I'm very excited about hosting stuff and running workshops. Yeah, absolutely. How's that going to work then? What what type of event, events that going to be? Uh, we'll get the whole company together for about three days and it'll be a mixture of workshops and presentations and a thing that I have come to call creative time because I used to call it a hackathon and then realised that people who are not in the tech space at all don't really know what that means and it feels quite hostile. Um, you know, if you put three people who, you know, don't know where Terminal is on their computer and have never read or written a line of together and say hey it's hackathon time like they're not going to think hey let's redesign this process then let's you know redevelop our sales personas let's do this fun thing which will make my life significantly easier in future um so yeah so we'll have some creative time and some celebrations and some socializing uh i'm optimizing for for making sure that our introverts don't all come and kill me at the end of the session so we'll also have some nice chill down time sounds really good in terms of the funding for what you're doing in your department, I'm guessing with all the startups you've been involved with, well, I know it's going to come to a point and they'll come to a point with Griffin where you need to say to them to set up the people structures that are going to make this successful, we need to spend some money. Mm-hmm. I'm also guessing that in some of the startups you've worked with, they haven't been that keen to spend the money because spending on people is often seen as not important. We should be doing other things. But you won't think that. You'll think it's really important. So what are they going to do at Griffin when you ask for a chunk of money to make sure the people you recruit develop, become really competent and more to the point, want to stay with you? Are you going to get it? Yes. Um, I have a couple of times already. 
it's uh it's funny like the the people finance relationship I think is really interesting because you're always collaborating with them on things like payroll um but at the same time for most startups about 70 percent of your burn every month is salaries and so that kind of comes under the microscope and it becomes very easy to say hey if we're paying this person 50 grand a year and we're paying you know 16 or 18 percent recruiter fee in order to bring them in it's like actually what percentage of this can we spend on making sure that they feel socially connected with the people that they work with and making sure that they have the equipment they need to do their role and making sure that they have uh, private medical insurance or mental health care or something like that it um it's it's all relatively small relative to the uh, the salary costs which is where you're starting from so as we come to the end of this podcast let's talk a, a little bit about you outside of work what what are your values and what are really important to you in life in general um that's a great question um i like i said earlier i don't really take myself particularly seriously um i really value having fun which to me means learning things um kind of playing with interesting topics spending time with people that i find really energizing um so I read a lot um I enjoy hanging out with my kid uh when he's not playing video games I've tried Minecraft but I'm just not particularly into it um and he's got some other one that he plays that I just don't understand at all um how old's your little fella he is nine right okay so very computer games at the moment um but yeah he's a he's a good laugh when we're outside somewhere um yeah I do jigsaws. I do lots of things that give me a sense of having created something. Um, so cooking and jigsaws and painting, I find really helpful. A lot of the time in, in the people space, it's very hard to feel like you've achieved anything. Um, and so having hobbies where you can say, aha, I've made an origami butterfly. This was a flat sheet of paper three minutes ago. Now it's a butterfly is, is very uh, rewarding. And what about your vulnerabilities? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, I think most of us have got some stuff going on that we kind of battle with or, or doesn't make us feel good or we have to step round or it's just stuff that makes up the complete person and makes you a better person by knowing that you've got some areas that, that you need to, to kind of work on. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am a massively flawed person. Um, I've learned a lot about myself over the last several years, partly through um, having a pretty terrible time with my mental health. Um, I've written about this and I talk about this a lot. Um, I, I think I've been struggling with anxiety basically since I was a teenager, but only when I properly burnt out at one of my jobs did I realise that actually maybe maybe this is a medical problem rather than just a personality flaw. Um, but, uh, but kind of coming to terms with that, like, that anxiety and depression are always going to be part of my life, I think has been really helpful for me. It's helped me kind of understand my limits and not sweat too much about the small things and, you know, appreciate that actually I will always worry about everything, but that's fine and it doesn't really matter and I don't need to do something about these worries. How do you mitigate them, though? You'll have your own coping mechanisms that you you will automatically... Maybe that's partly the fun. It's certainly going to be hanging out with your son, but there'll, there'll be some stuff when life gets really stressy that you'll do something and there'll be some triggers. What type of stuff do you 
do you use? Uh, I I just try to avoid being too busy because I find that when I feel busy, I feel very stressed. Um, I like to juggle various different things so that when I get stuck on a work project, I don't keep hammering away against that. I move on to something different. Um, I like to have variety. Uh, part of the thing that I'm really enjoying about working from home and working in a fairly flexible company is that if I'm if it's just not happening, I can just shut my laptop and go out for a bike ride for an hour or so and then come back to it later. Um, I don't I don't think it's worth trying to force it a lot of the time. Um, you know, it it is what it is. Uh, to quote a good friend of mine, it's not that deep. Um, that's kind of her mantra for me. And I repeat it to myself on the regular, right? Like, what's the worst that happens? It's fine. Uh, and you, you spoke about exercise. Um, that That's massively good for just about all of us at all levels, but certainly for any of us that suffer from any level of anxiety. Yeah. Uh, exercise is, is great, isn't it? Yeah. Exercise, being away from screens, having a little bit of time to, like, just just vibe basically um yeah i mean therapy is also really good and for all of us with our own vulnerabilities and trust me i've got plenty but this podcast is about you and not about me <laughs> then it makes us better people and what i found is that it's meant that i could work during my my professional career in environments where i was really at my best and that's clearly happening for you, Maria, because your understanding of those issues means that you're in the perfect position in charge of developing people to have that empathy to realise people need help and support the world over with all of this. Yeah, and I think also I'm really fortunate that in all of the companies that I've worked for, I've been able to talk about mental health and everything like that without anyone being particularly judgy or dismissive. Um, and I think that's really helpful. I feel like with most things, as soon as you acknowledge that they exist and you start to think about them and talk about them and destigmatize them, everything's just a lot better. It's very hard to get help or support for a problem if you haven't acknowledged that it's a problem. And I haven't spoken to anyone since the pandemic started who hasn't got a mental health issue of one sort or another. And it's not surprising, is it? Uh yeah, it's been wild. It's been terrible. Look at that. I'm looking at you on a screen as we record this. And you said that with the biggest smile ear to ear, didn't you? It's, uh, you know, like, it's just been another another one of those horrible situations. But I think everyone has adapted and a lot of things have changed. Um, you know, like, it is pretty terrible. I will never watch a disaster film again where... Uh, you know, someone comes down with a mysterious disease and then suddenly everything is quarantined and everybody's okay. Like, that's just not been at all how this has panned out. Um, I am probably never going to take public transport without a mask on again. It's been really nice not having any colds or flus or anything over the last year. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been really cha challenging. Um, I think it's been particularly challenging uh, for those of us who are trying to, like, support an organization full of humans as well as deal with our own situation and chaos um but yeah and and what's what's one really good thing that's come out of the last couple of years for you hmm. 
for me personally, um, I have, well, I finally pulled the trigger and decided that I would attempt to buy a house. Um, so I'm no longer in a small two bedroom flat. I now have an office, which is amazing and makes working from home much nicer. Um, I think on the kind of professional side of things, a lot of the conversation about distributive working and, you know, whether or not everyone does need to be in an office, uh, giving people flexibility, I think has been really, really positive. Um, it's been really nice to see that happening. I don't, I don't think I could work nine to five anyway. Um, but, uh, but yeah, knowing that I don't have to work nine to five in an office and being able to work from home at hours that more or less suit you has been really, really positive for everyone, I think. Um, I am slightly disappointed that the Tories didn't implement a universal basic income because they thought that would have been hilarious and great. But, um, but yeah. <laughs> and on that lovely political controversial point, we'll bring this podcast to an end. Maria Campbell, serial startup queen, serial people developer. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed today's episode and are interested in seeing and listening to more of our content, please do follow us on our LinkedIn profile, where you'll find more industry-related material and articles. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode and look forward to you joining us then.